week two of this series, um, and we're actually changing a few things from what's in the book and whatever. We're not going by it. Matter of fact, there is a lot of meat on the bone. How many of you know what that means in this book? I'm not even really touching much of what's in here. I'm kind of using this as a thematic process. Occasionally, there's something here I'll pull out and share with you in the sermon. These books are available for a recommended donation. Donations, the key word means you can take one for free and we won't get mad. Recommend donation of $10. It's about what we, we bought them for, but we want you to have it at least one per family. I think we have 250 copies. Can I just tell you, we don't want any of them left. We bought them for you to have them. This will encourage you in your faith. It's a pretty quick read, pretty short read, pretty uh, uh, easy read. And let me see, I think it has uh, maybe 10 or 11 chapters, 12 chapters. And today, so last week, I actually went on tour number one, always here. Today, I'm doing tour number two, always working. I'm doing seven chapters of the book today, which lets you know I'm barely kind of skimming the surface of it. There's a lot of good, encouraging stories in here, a lot of help in here uh, that, that I want to encourage you to do. I want to share with you today seven ways God's always, God always works for you. And these seven are not intended to be... Um, uh, inclusive that this is it and only the seven God works in a thousand ways for you but there's seven categories that the book speaks about that I just really grabbed hold of and want to share with you first of all Romans eight twenty eight in the NIV it reads this way and we know that in all things God works in other words it's God who's working it's not this this random thing that God sort of just pulls stuff that's out there and pulls it together. God has a design, and sometimes even the things that we think, why is this happening to me? God says there's a plan and a purpose for it. Just stick with me, and you'll see it when you get past it. How many of you discover that when you're going through a, a thing in life, whatever that thing is, that when you're in the middle of it, you often have no idea why this is going on? And that's called faith. That's called trust. But sometimes when you get past, you look back. And sometimes things like that are meant to be shared to encourage other people. And sometimes they're meant just for your own, your own growth and development. They're not always given to you to share with others. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. God is always at work. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Jesus said, come to me all, everybody say all. I don't like doing that a whole lot, just making you say words back to me, but occasionally I want to make sure you really get it. This isn't come unto me if you're this or that, or if you have this qualification, or if you fit this category. Come unto me all who are weary. Anybody qualify on that one? Come to me, all who carry heavy burdens. Anybody qualify there? I will give you rest. The reality is life can be hard. Life can be heavy. Life can make you weary. But Jesus promises to give you rest. Back over to Psalm 103. I didn't put the, the text in your notes because I was limited in space. But here's what it says. It says, let all that I am praise the Lord with my whole heart. I will praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he does for me. Then the writer goes on to mention five, th five things. He forgives all my sins. 
As a sinner, he forgives me. By the way, this was before the cross that this revelation was understood. God has always been a God who delights in forgiving sinners. So I'm afraid to approach God because I've messed up so bad. Congratulations, you're well qualified to receive grace. Grace is not for the perfect, it's for the imperfect. It's for the ones who've blown it. It's for the ones who go, I am a sinner. I, the word sin means to miss the mark. I, you know, some of us, we not only miss the mark, we miss, we were, we were pointing the wrong direction even. I was down at a place this last week where they had a gun range. It's an outdoor camping area, whatever. And they had turned the gun range because their initial layout, the gun range shot right over the swimming hole. I would call that missing the mark. And they aimed it over a different direction and they put an embankment up and now it's good. I'm still not going anywhere near that place, but uh, sometimes we really miss the mark. But God always forgives us when we call on him and we repent. He heals my diseases when I'm sick. He heals me. He redeems me from death. When I'm in bondage, he redeems me. He crowns me with love and tender mercies. As a child, he covers me with his blessings. He fills my life with good things. As a saint, he satisfies me. God is always working for my good. Now, here's the problem. Sin has defaced the world. Sin has scarred the world. Sin has defigured the world. Because of sin, there's a lot of things in our life that, that aren't good, that aren't right. There are things that go the wrong direction. God is working through us to overcome those things in our own lives. Sin brought problems, and because of that, because of our human, our human nature, we're frequently in a condition of deficiency that results in ruin. In other words, we lack what we need to get the job done, and therefore, it's only going to get worse. But here's the good news. God wants to assist you in the difficult moments of life. Listen to Psalm 46.1. God is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in time of trouble. God will transform your difficult moments into celebrations of victory. Here's seven things God will do. Number one, God will pursue and rescue when you're lost. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. That was the mission statement of Jesus, pursuing and rescuing the lost. Jesus descended from heaven. I know we've heard that so many times. We've sang those songs, but I'm afraid that somehow we've not gotten the full image of what that looks like. He willingly forfeited all the benefits that rightfully belong to him and came to be among us to offer salvation for all who received him. The word lost, when you read that in the Bible, uh, when you go back to the original language, the word that's given there is the word perish. It, it means a state of ruin. 
So we're talking about something being lost. We're talking about, uh, it's kind of like if you came home and lightning had hit your house and your refrigerator and freezer went out and you were gone for a month and you come back and you open the door. Here's a statement you might make. It's all lost. None of it can be saved. It's worthless. It's, It's worse than worthless because worthless means having a zero number. It's now a deficiency. It's now a negative. The word, that's what the word lost means. It means to be in a place where there is nothing about us that has value in, in light of the kingdom of God. You might be a good person. You might do some nice things occasionally. But as far as your eternal value without Christ, for me and for you, we are less than a zero. We'll never measure up by God's standard. We, we can never come to that place. We're always going to be on the bottom side of that. We're lost. But Jesus came looking for us. He didn't take out an ad in the paper, and hopefully if you saw it, maybe you responded and you were able to receive. No, he did more than that. He came to you when you could not go to him. Jesus descended from heaven because he loves us. This word lost denotes a hostility or hatred toward God, this, this sense of adversarial relationship. Romans 5, 8 says this, though, that when we were sinners, God loved us. I don't think we understand that because we, we tend to gloss over the fact, well, I'm not that bad a person. My sins aren't that big. I've not been that horrible. But the reality is, on the scale of eternal value, none of us had any value. And God loved us in that state. To teach us how much God loves lost things and lost causes, Jesus told three parables in Luke 15. The connection of the three is there were three things that were lost. There was a lost sheep, and the shepherd went out, left the 99, went to get the one. There was the lost coin, and the lady searched diligently, looked everywhere, looked into the night, took exceptional effort to find the coin, and when she found it, she rejoiced. And there was the lost son, which is a picture of all of us as we wander off into sin, and then we come back to God ashamed, filled with guilt and and, and discouragement, just hoping that somehow he'll let us in. But not only does God let us in when we come back to him, he comes and greets us, throws his arms around us, and expresses his love to us. Charles Spurgeon had a sermon he wrote about this one verse, talking about the father running to the son, and he called it the, 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 the unexpected kiss of the father to the wayward son. You may feel like because of all those negative things, I'm not worth anything. I don't have value eternally, spiritually. You know, I'm just hoping to get by, live my life and, and, and get through it. But God says that through faith in Jesus Christ, you can be restored. Jesus Christ came to pursue you and to rescue when you were lost. He came not for the best. He came not for the ones out front. He came not for the ones with talent. He came for the least, the last, and the lost. 
I'm glad that I qualify. The second thing God will do is God will restore the broken. One of the major themes of the prophets in the Old Testament is the restoration of broken situations. Joel talks about God will restore the years that were destroyed, the, the, the years that were lost because of the destruction of the locusts, the grasshoppers. He, he will restore what was his punishment and judgment. He'll restore back. You read through all the different places and God says he'll restore their wealth. He'll restore their place. God will restore. God is a God of restoration. God restores joy. Think about the, 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 the person of David. When David cried out, restore to me the joy of my salvation, we discover that God heard that, that cry, that request, and he did it. He'll restore your purpose in life. Uh, it, it's coming right up next after this statement. But Peter is one of the prime examples, the, the probably looked at by most people as he's one of the top three of the 12, and probably he's, he's, he's the leader. He's the guy. And yet he blew it so bad. I mean, there's a couple of days there in Peter's life where he is just clueless. He's actually going against what the will of God is. Then when he has the opportunity to speak for Christ, he denies him in the middle of the night. Rooster crows, he weeps bitterly. I mean, it's a bad, bad, bad picture. Sometimes we feel like, man, I could have done so much with my life if I wouldn't have made this mistake or that mistake, but this is what's cost me. This is what's damaged me. I can never go back. I can never be. Let me tell you, God is a God of restoration. And he restores purpose. He restores hope. He restores value and dignity. It's in the book, this story. But the, the writer talks about it in the book when they bring the lady caught in the act of adultery to Jesus. That story is so fishy. There's so many weird points there. You go, how did this happen? And where's the guy? And were they looking in the window? I mean, what, what was going on here? This is just a weird story. Well, it was contrived by the, the religious group of that day trying to catch Jesus and put him in a predicament so that he could not win. Their thought was this. If he shows leniency, then, then we can say this man does not uphold the law. This man uh, no longer embraces what we embrace. Surely he is a failure. And if he demands justice, then they will say, this man speaks this message of grace and restoration healing, but he is not true to his word. Never mind their own hypocrisy. But they were trying to discredit Jesus. Isn't it beautiful how Jesus took this moment? You, you think about it. I don't want to be overly graphic, but if the woman was truly caught in the act of adultery and they were setting this whole thing up, it may be that she came either with no clothing or just barely any clothing on whatsoever. And she's there at the very least, even if she had time to get all of her clothes on, which I doubt they gave her probably, but if they did, she's there and she's embarrassed and she's, she's made to, to feel lower than dirt and she's just humiliated in front of them and you know what Jesus does for her he restores her dignity he calls her woman 
kind of funny. Our youngest child used to call Janet woman sometimes. <laughs> he said it was always in love, right? So we're going to believe that. Because when Jesus said woman, it was always in love. It was a statement of value, of dignity. And he restores to this one who was thought of possibly as a prostitute. Certainly as a, of, certainly as a woman who had no morals or values to be discredited, to be looked at, Jesus restored her brokenness. God's grace provides forgiveness and restoration for our biggest failures. I love 1 John 1, 9. If anyone can confesses his sin, God is faithful and just to forgive them. That, 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 that's, that's what we have to have. Forgiveness is required, but he goes beyond that. He has a second layer on to forgive them, and to cleanse them of all unrighteousness. I'm the king of stain. I just, I'm just going to, I've admitted it before. I'm not happy about it. I don't know why it happens, but I can't eat anything without putting it on my shirt. It ha- <laughs> Janet just said, it's true over here, and, and she know, I know what it is. She knows it is. The other day I was eating something, and it's like, so here's the, normally what happens in our house, especially, you know, boy, I'm going to give Janet so much ammunition right here against me. You know, I, so I'll go eat like in our, our, our TV room or whatever, and that's where all the spills occur for me pretty much. But I got something on my shirt the other day, and here's, what, here's what, how this scenario plays out. I get something on my shirt, and I'm like, ah, oh, Janet, can this come out? Can we get this out? Can, is there a stain stick? Is there a pool? What do we, and she's like, give it to me, you know, and she does something with it. And then I get the shirt back, and it's gone. And then I like to pretend the stain was never there. <laughs> because it's not there anymore. You know what God does with your sins? He forgives the sin, but he cleanses it so that it can never even be seen that there was any evidence of it ever being there. God is a God who restores the broken. He'll calm the anxious. Boy, that's a, that is at a pandemic level in our world today. And I mean, can't we all justify why we're a little bit anxious? <laughs> this morning, my phone rang. Ben, if you're watching, hey, buddy, I'm talking about you right now. My phone rang this morning. I was in my office around a little before 10 or right at 10 o'clock. And he said, wireless caller Tulsa. And normally I just ignore that to be truthful. Because especially on Sunday morning, but I'm thinking that there's a wireless Tulsa call last night. Maybe it's the same person. I don't know. We'll check whatever. And I said, hello. And it was my, my friend who goes to our church here, Ben. And Ben said, I'm in Sand Springs today. Ben's 15, 16. Sorry, I don't know. Ben's 16, something like that. And... Um, he says, Pastor, he says, I'm in Sand Springs. I said, so are you going to be at church today? He goes, nope, but I'll watch online. I'll watch you on my phone. So I hope you're watching, Ben. And he said, um, he said, COVID-19, we need to have ministry moments again. <laughs> and his mindset was kind of like, I want it to go back to how it used to be. And I said, Ben, I hope we're, I said, I think we're past COVID-19. I sure hope we are. And we're going to encourage people to be friendly. We may, we may do that again before too long. He goes, I like that. I like that. 
you know, it, it's, um, we live in a place where our world has been just decimated by anxiety. The unknown. We all went through it, okay? Unless you're yet younger than a year old, you went through this. Not knowing, are we working at the office? We're working from home? Are we going to church? We're watching online. Is the grocery store open? Is the restaurant open? And now we still have the problem of this. If I go to the restaurant, will there be anybody working there who can serve me? There are many causes of stress, anxiety, and worry in our world, but this is not a new situation. I don't, take, I don't have time to take long on this, but I think back when Jesus walked through situations with the disciples and he brought them peace in the middle of the storm. Sometimes Jesus calms the storm and sometimes he calms the child. Looking at that storyline right there, it's interesting how anxiety causes our perspective to get warped. Jesus is asleep in the boat in one of the stories, and they come to him and wake him up. It's kind of interesting because they're not, they're, you would hope that they would say, Lord, you're, gonna, you're about to die. We need to do something. That would have been at least a little bit thoughtful and considerate, but they wake him up and they go, Lord, you don't even care. And we're all about to drown. We're we not about to, we're, we're drowning, and you don't even care. Well, first of all, he does care. Their perspective is warped because of their momentary anxiety. Secondly, you are not drowning. The boat's still afloat. Now, you may be in danger, but you're not there yet. Isn't it amazing how quickly we can exceed the description of our situation to the worst-case scenario? You know what causes that? Anxiety. Allowing worry to ruin our lives. You know, Paul said it this way, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. Anxiety magnifies your problem and minimizes God. Here are three steps to staying calm in stressful situations. It's in the book, by the way, these three points are, and there's some great words and notes right around them. Number one, to, to avoid uh, worry and stress and anxiety, number one, put your mind on Jesus. Think about him. Recognize his hand at work in your life. Think back to when he's brought you through and realize he's not giving up on you today. You can trust him. Put your knees on the floor. You know, it's hard to worry and pray at the same time. Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. And the peace of God, which goes beyond human understanding, will guard your heart and your mind. Put your knees on the floor. Put your hands in the air. How about worship there? Worship is the antidote of worry. The more you worship God, the less you worry. Number four, God will encourage the fearful. These are things that God does for us, seven ways God's working. If you're fearful, know this. You can address your fear with faith in God. You don't even have to understand to have faith. Faith is simply trusting when you don't understand sometimes. The most frequently repeated command of the Bible is fear not. 
I've been told that there's 366 such commands in the Bible. And the person who came up with that number, depends on how you read them and how you look at them, but here's what they said. That's so that God gives you for one, one for every day of the year, including when it's leap year, there's one in there for that day too. 366, don't be afraid. You know why God has to tell us not to be afraid? Because naturally, we're fearful. You, you know, I, I mean, somebody doesn't have to warn us to do something that's not in our capacity. I, I'm just being real truthful and honest right now, but if I'm out playing basketball, which I don't do those kind of things as much anymore as I used to, it used to be my life, and now it's kind of like I'm the sideline guy watching. But nobody's going to have to say to me, hey, Pastor Bruce, don't dunk the basketball today. I'd probably be kind of happy if they did say it. They don't have to say it. Why? Because it's not going to happen. Jesus tells us, the Word of God tells us so many times, don't be afraid because it's our natural inclination. He addresses it clearly. He will give us encouragement and strength to overcome fear. Every fearful situation becomes a defining moment, and we will either be strengthened or, or we will be weakened because of it. We'll be better or worse, but never the same. When you face a difficult situation, put your trust in God and be encouraged by him. Remember these three things. When you're feeling fearful, know number one this, God is with us. That's Emmanuel. He dwells with us. He, he is with us. Number two, know this, God is for us. Romans chapter 8, if God be for us, who can be against us? Know this, third thing, God is in us. We're going to make it. We can have courage. We can have strength. Push back on the fear and grab hold of God in faith. Number five, God will comfort the lonely. Loneliness is one of the greatest epidemics in, our, in humanity today. If you think back about it, the author talks about this a little bit. Some of the most popular songs in, in, in not just recent times, but of every decade speak to this question of loneliness. I think back to a song as a kid that I heard that I never liked. Because it was kind of a twangy country sound, which I never cared for. If you like twangy country, there's probably a place in heaven over in a corner where you'll fit in. <laughs> it's going to be a long way from where I am, but it, you'll probably be okay. And this twangy country song made this statement, I'm so lonesome, I could cry. Think of even back in the Elvis days. Heartbreak Hotel. He talks about being down at the end of Lonely Street. It, it, it's part of our culture, and it doesn't go away even when you're in a big crowd. That's the weird thing about loneliness. You can feel lonely when you're surrounded by thousands of people. Really, this is going to be counterintuitive what I'm going to tell you right now, but, but the way to overcome loneliness is through spending daily time alone with God. Having times of solitude. Wait, if I don't want to be lonely, I need to fill my life with lots of noise and clutter. <laughs> no, because when the noise and clutter diminish it all, that's when the loneliness hits in. See, God wants you to learn to be alone without feeling 
lonely. And here's the comfort that God brings to the lonely. God's word brings us comfort. Read the word. The Holy Spirit is called the comforter. Get connected to the Holy Spirit and let him fill your life. And God's people will help us experience biblical community. One of my greatest frustrations, I'm going to tell you this right now, very, very candid, very openly, is there's so many of you I wish I could get to know better, but we just don't have great systems for doing that sometimes. And I'll do my best to try to connect with you and connect you with other people. But know this, anytime, I, I can't say this strong enough or often enough, but anytime you want to get together for a cup of coffee, anytime you want to have lunch, just let me know and I'm glad to meet with you because I like connecting with people. It's meaningful, it's valuable, but it's hard to do. We have to take the effort. We have to make the initiative. Psalm 68, 6, what a beautiful verse this is. God places the lonely in families. He sets the prisoners free and gives them joy, but he makes the rebellious live a sun, in a sun-scorched land. Can I encourage you to make your home a place of hospitality, to make your home a place of refuge, to make your home a place where your family feels welcome and connected? God will help the angry, number six. Angry is one of the most destructive human emotions. Think of the, da the damage that anger does with work, with family, with church, with neighbors. And often we're angry, we do one of two things. We either deny it or justify it. <laughs> you ever seen that person? I'm not angry. Ooh, okay. I would hate to see you when you are. If this isn't anger, I'm not really sure what it would look like, but it would really be bad. Or the other places we justify, well, I have a right. It's just the reality of life. All of us see it this direction for the most part. If I'm angry about something, in my mind, it's righteous anger. We all think that way. There's a cause, there's a reason. It's justified, it's okay. You know that, that anger, again, I come back to this, anger does enormous damage. Let me, let me move through quick. I'm going to get to a verse here to read that will kind of bring this into play. Anger often happens because we feel hurt, because we feel like we've been treated unfairly, because there's fear of something out there or frustration about what's going on. But anger leads to sin if it's not directed the right way. Here's what Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 says. Let me let Paul say it because he says it real well. Get rid, get rid. So how many of you ever cleaned out your garage? When you clean out your garage, do you have a stack of things I want to keep and things I want to get rid of? If you do, that's your problem. You only need one stack, things we're getting rid of. You need the dumpster because the thing is we'll hold on to stuff we don't need but we might need one day. There needs to be like an area in your attic, stuff I'll never use, but just in case. And it all goes right there, you know. It'd be a big, big area for some people. Paul says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, 
Be kind to each other. Tender-hearted. The word compassionate could be put in place right there. Forgiving one another just as God through Christ has forgiven you. God will help the angry. God will forgive the guilty. God pardons the guilty. He forgives and cleanses the repentant. Now, now here's what happens. When we do wrong, when we do wrong, there are two voices speaking in our life. And they both go, you blew it. That's how they both start out. One's God, one's the devil. I'm kind of overgeneralizing here. But both, when we mess up, both voices will say, you messed up. You blew it. What comes from God through the Holy Spirit, though, is called conviction. The point of conviction is to point out our sin so that we repent and are restored. Now, the devil will say, you blew it. He will normally follow it up with this phrase, you might as well quit. You'll never make it. You're disqualified. You're worthless. Now, now here's the truth. There are consequences to our action. There may be some things that change because of what we do. But as far as the forgiveness of God, he is able and willing to forgive us of all of our sins. The devil condemns us of sin to prevent forgiveness, resulting in guilt and shame. God convicts us of sin to repair the breach, which results in growth and freedom. Here's the reality in, in life. We got three choices in how we deal with this stuff. And here's what we need to choose. Choose the gospel over guilt. When you're looking at sin, don't let guilt be the option you choose. Oh, I've blown it. I can never make it. I, I might as well just quit. I'll just struggle along and never have victory and freedom. Choose the gospel that says that when we choose Christ, he gives us freedom. He gives us victory. He gives us the ability to live free from sin. Choose the gospel. Choose confession over concealment. Proverbs 28, 13 says, the one who conceals his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. Choose facts over feelings. And I've said this so many times, but feelings are so fickle. They can go from highs to lows. Last year, I was watching a particular football game. It was one of the best endings to a professional football game ever. It was in the, the, the playoffs, and it was the Kansas City Chiefs, and it was uh, Buffalo Bills. And it went back and forth and back and forth, and, and the Chiefs scored, and all the Chief fans were like, yeah, we're going to win. Then with like seconds left, the Bills scored. It's like, ah, we're going to win. And then it was back and forth. And I remember watching the game going, Okay, I think there were like four times in the last two minutes of the game where each team scored a touchdown. And the last one, they, there was no way they should have been able to make it happen. You're looking at it, and I think even the announcer said the odds of this being successful in a, a touchdown that ties the game is like one in a million or something. And, and, and they actually had some kind of thing they looked at that summarized up what, but it happened. My point is, emotions were going, we can't lose. No, we can't win. No, we can't lose. No, we can't win. No. We... Emotions go all over the place. Feelings shift, but the facts remain the same. God's word is the basis upon which we approach him. 
And I want you to know this today. God is always working for your good. And I implore you today, receive his acts of kindness and allow his spirit to help you become the person he's designed you to be. We're going to, um, in just a moment, have some baptisms. But I want you to bow your heads real quick. And I want to ask this question. If you're being baptized today, if you would, you can go ahead and get up and uh, move around to get in place to be baptized today. How many of you in the room would say, Pastor, one of those seven things, I need God's help in my life. I don't know which one it is for you, but I'm pretty sure most of us have at least one that we're working on. Some of us may have six of the seven that we're working on. I don't know where you're at, but how many of you say, Pastor, I want the Holy Spirit to do the work in my life that lets me become the person he wants me to be, and I know he's always working, and there's an area of my life where I need God's help. Would you just lift your hand with me all across the room? I need God's help, and I'm dependent upon the Holy Spirit to encourage and strengthen me. Yeah, so many, many hands are going up. All of us can probably respond to that. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're here today and you say, I need my sins forgiven. I need Jesus to forgive me and rescue me. I feel him coming and and pursuing me today. And I accept his grace. Whatever it is you need God to do, God is always working for your good. If you make a decision to follow Christ today or to grow in faith, there's a table out in the front that'll have some supplies that will help you in your journey. We'll be happy to pray with you and talk with you. If right now you need to make a confession of faith in Christ and receive his forgiveness, I want to lead in a prayer and ask you to do that. As a matter of fact, if any of the seven things, whatever applies to you, as I'm praying, will you say, God, help me. Help me to be calm instead of anxious. Help me to be kind instead of angry. Help me to trust in you. As I pray, would you ask the Holy Spirit to do that for you right now? Father, I thank you that you're an always God. That the things that that we looked at today, you're always working for our good. And I thank you, God, that you pursue us. I thank you, God, that you restore us. I thank you, God, that you comfort us, that you help us, that you guide us, that you forgive us for all that you do for us, Lord. May we recognize our own inability that we cannot succeed without your help. Lord, I pray that you would give us the mind that is led by the Spirit. For your word tells us that as many as are led by the Spirit, they are children of God. And that the spiritual mind can comprehend the things of God, but the natural mind cannot. The spiritual mind leads to life, but the natural mind leads to death. Thank you, God, that you're always working on our behalf. We give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.